Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Stacey. Hope you're well and surviving. I've not done a lot of episodes in the lockdown. I feel that the topic of homeworking very quickly reached saturation levels of coverage. And I don't know about you, but I'm finding the rhythm of trying to get my Wi-Fi to work and then get down to the supermarket. And the it's all an ordeal enough without me lecturing you on how to be more productive. If you are interested and hungry for more of that WFH content, the newsletter that went out alongside this episode has two podcasts to listen to that cover it. And you can get that newsletter at the website, eatsleepworkrepeat.com. Today's episode is about the power of diverse thinking. And our guest is the brilliant thinker, writer, commentator, Matthew Syed. Matthew has got a wonderful career. Actually, you know, he's got like one of those dream careers. He represented Great Britain at table tennis at at the Barcelona and Sydney Olympics. He's gone on to become one of the biggest, most successful and I think most respected writers for business books in the UK with books like Bounce in 2010, Black Box Thinking in 2015. He wrote a kid's book called You Are Awesome in 2018. And Rebel Ideas, The Power of Diverse Thinking is his most recent book. It's just come out in paperback this week. If you enjoy this discussion, I think you'll love that book because a lot of business books... I find hammer one idea home for 200 pages. And this really is a rich exploration of the power of diverse thinking, diverse leadership styles, how how to bring all of it together. We have a great discussion. Uh, We talk along the way about Max Martin, the legendary pop music writer, and his use of diverse and rich uh, songwriting rooms when he's putting songs together. It's just a fantastic discussion. So I think you're going to enjoy this. This is my discussion with Matthew Said. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Are you well? Hey, Bruce. Thanks for having me on. I'm fine. How are you doing? Strange time to be launching a book. It's uh, the, the joy of, of the paperback of arriving in bookshops that are now thoroughly locked down must be frustrating. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. No doubt about that at all. But uh, it, it's available on 
Kindle, and you can buy it remotely via Amazon and Waterstones and Audible. But you're right, and I mean, it's a tough time for everyone. Authors are not excluded from that. But, um, you know, life will go on and we'll, we'll come through this, I think. And I'm looking forward to getting out the other side. And I think it gives us a lot of opportunities to think differently about the future. So I'm not um, wholly pessimistic, but this is clearly a very difficult period. Can I ask, when it comes to, because you've written... Uh, a number of books now, but can I ask when it comes to choosing subject matter for what you write, what guides you? What what determines the curiosity that you have, and and what directs you in in a certain a certain route of travel? Well, I have written three adult books, and all of them have really been about things that have of great interest to me. Things like I have seen in the scientific literature, or I feel don't have enough cultural profile and this book on diversity is is you know fits perfectly into that obviously a big topic but one i thought that was being discussed in in slightly um, unfortunate ways and it just felt like a ripe moment to write a book about it I thought we'd start with the the Justice Scalia provocation, which is, I think, probably goes to the heart of why discussions about diversity always become upended by reductive thinking and and people sort of reaching for a headline. So so Justice Scalia, and correct me when I finish this, but Justice Scalia was uh, American Supreme Court judge and in an adjudication, I think, Justice Scalia said that you, you have a choice. You can either have diversity or you can be elite, but it's an opposition and that they exist in opposition to each other. And I, and I guess for me, I want you to understand that because so often diversity is styled as dilution and resolutely, the conclusion from your book is resolutely, that is a, a cognitive mistake. Well, interestingly, I, I think it is a mistake in some contexts but it is not a mistake in other contexts. So, okay. if, so, so if you take, for example, a simple and linear activity like running in, in a straight line or even around bends, if, if you are hiring a sprint relay team and you want to win an Olympic gold medal next month, let's say you could find and identify and then clone the fastest person in the world. Let's call that person, for argument's sake, Usain Bolt. And you put four Usain Bolts in the team. Now that to me, and I think most Olympic coaches, is a pretty good team. Every member of your team is faster than any member of any other team. As long as they pass the baton correctly and don't fall out before the event, you're going to smash the opposition. And if somebody said to you, there's no diversity in your team, they're all the same gender, the same race. In fact, they're, they're clones of each other. You need to diversify the team. That would mean hiring slower runners and it would slow the team down. It seems to me that that is unequivocally true. The reason I mentioned this, by the way, as an example, is I was once at an HR conference where somebody on the stage was saying diversity always makes the team better. And somebody said, well, what about a sprint relay team? And that was clearly not true. But of course, the person on the stage wasn't able to answer the question effectively, which is why so many people think diversity is a distraction from high performance. They think, well, if this person is diverse but less good, why would you want to hire them? It should just be about individual ability. That is true in certain contexts. But in most contexts, the really important contexts, in other words, when we're confronted by complexity, 
the really big challenges we face, diversity takes on a whole new meaning. Go on. So, so to Justice Scalia saying here that diversity is dilution, then I guess the first thing you'd say is it depends on what you're looking for. But in the case, can you remind me of the Justice Scalia case? He was talking about college admissions. Um, right. Or you can choose to be diverse, or you can choose to be super duper. And you know, so and also the point that I was making is that Scalia was thinking about it in a very linear, simple way. He would have been right if he had been talking about sprint relay teams. But let's take a different context. Let's take, for example, coming up with creative ideas. Now that's obviously a very challenging thing to do because new ideas are not easy to generate. New ideas that are also good are very difficult to generate. But let, let's say you've put together a team of ten people to come up with great new ideas for the future of the United States of America or the future of your business. And let's say that each of these individuals is very talented. Each of them comes up with 10 genuinely brilliant ideas. How many brilliant ideas do you have in total? Well, you might, Justice Scalia might think, well, you have 100 brilliant ideas, 10 times 10. But if these people are cognitively homogeneous, if they think in the same way and they come up with the same ideas as one another, you might only have 10. If, on the other hand, they're cognitively diverse and come up with different ideas from one another, then you could have 100. You've got two teams, and this is you know, not completely unsubtle point, composed of individuals of equal talent, but one of those teams is almost 1,000% more creative. And the reason it's more creative is because not only are the individuals talented, but they are also diverse. Cognitive diversity turns out to have massive implications in creative tasks, in prediction tasks, in problem-solving tasks, where no one brain, where no one perspective is enough. You need multiple perspectives and divergent thinking. What I try and do in my book is explain in detail how that happens and how to identify cognitively diverse individuals who can help teams to do so much better. And of course, the challenge for all of us is that innately we're drawn towards people who share our sense of humour, share our taste in music, have the same memories about, nostalgic memories about TV shows, which, which you style as homophily. Yeah. Uh, and, and sort of the fact that we sometimes are blind to the fact that we seem to love being around people similar to us. Yeah, that's right. So this is a great irony, psychologically, as we're attracted unconsciously to people who think like us. You're absolutely right. In certain contexts, that's people who like the same music and the same books and have the same cultural milieu. And in organizations, it's people who share similar assumptions. You know, when they're mirroring our perspective, uh, it validates our worldview. It makes us feel smarter when people are telling us things we already know. The pleasure centers of our brains light up when people are effectively corroborating the way we think. And so you get this very powerful tendency of groups populated by individuals who think in a very similar way. That's fine if it's a really simple problem. It's a disaster if the problem is complex and you need different viewpoints in order to solve it. And it seems a challenge. One thing you point out is that homogenous groups tend to be more resolute, I guess because they're hearing the same opinions around the table a lot. They become anchored in the idea that their solutions are determinedly the, the best solutions. What what can we do to push against that? Yeah, exactly. So if everyone in a a meeting, they're agreeing with each other, genuinely and sincerely agreeing with each other, it can mean one of two things. Either they've got the answer, and as I say, in a simple problem, um, 
that is likely the answer. In a complex problem, it just means that they're missing a great deal of stuff that they would otherwise hear about and deal with if there was a more diverse group. So one way to guard against that is to be aware of the bias that we've been talking about, homophily, and to try and reach out to diverse voices. And in particular, to have a leader in the room who welcomes people who offer a different view. It doesn't mean that that view is correct, but it can jar the groupthink in the consensus and create divergent thinking and more meaningful solutions. I was quite taken with the idea that you talked about companies thinking of setting up shadow boards or shadow decision making. How have you witnessed that and and what part does that play in speeding up, slowing down, changing their decision making process? Yeah, so this is used by a number of companies. So one of the bits of diversity that can be useful in certain contexts is diversity in age group because you know a lot of executives are, are often, not always, but in a senior leadership team might be around the same age, might have grown up in the same cultural milieu, uh, might have similar assumptions about the way the world works, and particularly the way digital technology works, you get younger people who know a bit more about younger people's aspirations, about how they use digital technology, about potential disruptions that are about to hit based on what they're seeing in their community. You give those youngsters a bit of access to the executive decision-making group, and it can make a difference. And I know, I think I use the example in Rebel Ideas of Gucci and Prada, Mm. um, one of which used shallow boards very successfully, the other didn't and had worse outcomes. It's, It's one of the tools that can be used to generate true cognitive diversity. Do you think there's an appetite for more companies using those devices? I think the very cutting-edge companies are beginning to understand this. So one of the problems in, for example, the tech sector, I'm simplifying a little, I mean, you know about this, was mm. um, uh, if you look at each individual potential, if the HR function looks at each individual recruit and says, you know, what is their potential individually, then those individuals with very meaningfully good credentials are likely to be the ones graduating from the best universities from that develop software engineers, for example. But if the totality of your intake came from that one or two universities and they absorbed the same ideas and models and heuristics from the same professors, that can be a massive problem for the reason I went back to earlier with they're coming up with the same ideas and therefore you're not getting the same level of creative idea generation and neither the potential to recombine ideas in useful ways. So I think a lot of cutting-edge companies are beginning to come to terms with this. beginning to see its importance. For what it's worth, I think many of them now see um, cognitive diversity as a potential source of competitive advantage. You mentioned something there, and and I'd really love to explore it, the the idea that there's two concepts, there's two forms of innovation, recombinant innovation and incremental innovation. And I think because we so readily use the the word innovation for things that might fall into either category. We often lose the fact that there are these two different forms. Could you just give us an example of of recombinant innovation and maybe the more familiar um, incremental innovation? Yes, you're right. There there are, you know, conceptually, broadly speaking, incremental innovation and recombinant. I mean, incremental is, is, you know, James Dyson, who creates a prototype for a dual cyclone vacuum cleaner, and he tries to 
vacuums some dust from the floor. It doesn't work very effectively, so he tweaks the dimension of the cyclone, and it works a bit better, but it's not pulling up the hair, so he tweaks it again. And through a long process of iteration, incremental improvements, he gets to a working design. So it's a classic beta taste testing, rapid prototyping, marginal gains. There's a lot of terms that effectively denote what is happening. Recombinant innovation is where you take ideas from two separate areas, domains, um, intellectual disciplines, and bring them together. So if you think about um, wheels, this is a very important technology for our species. It's existed for a long time, and it's been incrementally improved as a technology. There's a different technology which we might describe as luggage, which has been used for a long time with uh, animal skins for carrying things around all the way through to suitcases and laptop cases and so on. But it took until 1972 to bring these two technologies together in the wheeled suitcase. You might remember, if you're old enough, Bruce, lugging around suitcases in transit without wheels. I did it for about 10 years. <laughs> um, and it's humans, I mean, actually, well, humans, all species, it's very difficult to step outside a particular area or category or academic subject or silo and see how that specialism or that technology can be usefully combined with a different one. But for what it's worth, it is recombinant innovation that is now starting to dominate in both science and the patent catalogue. Go on, tell me. So, so I guess technology, we see this all the time, don't we? We see someone applies technology to a solution and just the application of technology to it feels like it's a transformational innovation. And all you're saying really is that quite often it's just, it's recombinant. It's, it's combining things that already existed elsewhere. Yeah, that's exactly right. But to the fact that they existed previously in two distinct areas doesn't change the power of this technology to change the way we live, to change the way we understand the world. It's massively powerful. And are you saying that the the reason why this rebel idea, this sort of diversity of thinking has a benefit here is because, why, you've just got a broader set of ideas that you can combine in this recombinant thought? So in the innovation space, that is... Broadly speaking, correct, that the more diversity you have, the higher the level of scope for recombinant innovation. So in science, for example, most of the hit papers used to be written by individual authors or groups of authors from within a single subject. And you can imagine why that's powerful. You get this group of experts from within a discipline, and they're digging ever deeper into what that set of concepts tells us about the world. But now, most of the hit papers are written by teams of academics who work across disciplines. So you can see that they're bringing insights from psychology with behavioral economics and ecology to solve more complex, interconnected problems. And the same with the patent catalogue. The US Patent and Trademark Office you know, has categories, you know, utility patents and design patents. And you know, 100 years ago, most new technologies existed within classes. Now they're the products of lots of different classes because it's this recombinant innovation that is reaching across traditional boundaries and codes. So this, I think, is, is quite a big deal. If you think of evolution more generally, you can think of natural selection as a kind of incremental innovation and sexual recombination 
as recombinant innovation. It's bringing genes from two different organisms together. And without that recombination, it would have taken a lot longer to get all the genes that make the eye in one body. I find it especially interesting just to apply it live as you're talking. I'm I'm a pop music obsessive. And, and the one thing that's really transformed in the music industry in the last decade, but it's probably a sort of linear change um, for a long time, is that the amount of contributors to songs has gone up exponentially. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's not uncommon now for a song to have five songwriting writing credits and, and two or three production credits on it. And it's I think it's largely because our brains are more interested in more complex sounds. Now, I, I listened the other day, I, I don't nostalgically listen to a lot of music, but I listened to the, the Beatles' White Album. And actually, a lot of them sound like demos now because they're so raw and they're so simple in their, in their structure. And it's just interesting that as we become evolved and so we're more interested in complex things because we've heard the simple things it seems like that's another example of where multiple people in the room actually helps transform the the listening experience yeah i i i am interested in that i mean it's in, uh, that you're right the trend in popular music certainly is towards multiple writers um and sometimes 10 12 15 20 uh there's a very influential songwriter called Max Martin who has proved to be very successful at curating different groups of writers with different influences, classical, rock, uh, technical facility with uh, synthesizers and other types of things of that kind. And he's been a very good team builder. He built on somebody called Dennis Pop, I think. I might have the history wrong here, who's also very significant in in Stockholm in sort of the early 1990s. No, I think it's a valid point. I think that's probably a fair reflection of where music is going. I'm just conscious that a lot of people who listen to Max Martin records think they're less innovative than Lennon and McCartney records but but um it's I suppose it's I don't know maybe at the time it's difficult it's a bit like going back and watching Monty Python or it's like going back and watching comedy from two decades ago because you're now so familiar with all the devices they do it seems brutally simplistic and you know it's uh the evolution that we've gone through is something that's very hard to ignore when you when you're consuming something that's an evolved version of that and that's I think that's true. the thing yeah. with with pop music now is that the um, the rhythm patterns on pop music are so much more complex now because we're familiar with the predictable patterns that yeah. at the time seemed innovative before yeah I think okay so I, I think I agree with you on this I think that we're getting greater complexity in music greater complexity in um, television programs the plots are much more multifaceted there's something called the Flynn effect in IQ literature where the average IQ is going up by about one standard deviation each generation and I think the explanation for this is because it reflects the cultural complexity that we're watching more co- I mean if you look at television from 50 years ago it's more linear of course, they were innovative at the time that it worked, but the innovations today are building on what happened previously. And so I think yeah. you're right to say we're moving. And, and this is the same with digital technology. I mean, this is, again, it's just, it goes back to recombinant cultural evolution, where new technologies are basically recombining old ones in new and more complex ways. And our brains are responding as a consequence to that. And we get this uplift in our understanding of the world and in uh, cultural artifacts and other things of that kind. I think that's about right, yeah. The one thing I was was, uh, really fascinated by was the discussion you had about 
about immigrants and the contribution that immigrants often find themselves making with the the point towards diversity. And the, the point you make is that immigrants often have an outsider mindset. And that generally means that they have to prevail despite barriers that are there for them. But they often believe that the rules are negotiable in a way that insiders maybe don't always think that's the case. Yes. Is that, is that right? Can you yeah. articulate that better than me? Well, I thought you did it brilliantly. I think it's two, two things, really. One is they have greater ability to question the default assumptions. People who come to a country from a different country. They're prepared to question the status quo. Could it be changed? Can you give us an example of that? Is that just because sometimes, you know, in British establishment, they, they're not able to measure up to the, the norms of received pronunciation or they're, they're not able to, to deliver on some of the expectations? What, what examples would you give? I think it's probably something like this. You know, if, you, if you're brought up in a particular country, you get used to the way that that country does things, the way the traffic lights work, the way the education right. system works, the way the political institutions work, the way that bookshops are constituted. It becomes part of who you are. It, it's part of the basic way of doing things that you become socialized into. You can imagine somebody who comes from a different planet or would look at that and say, why are they doing stuff like this? And that ability to question the status quo opens up the chance to transcend it in one way or another. So first of all, it's the psychology of saying, could we do it differently? But the other thing immigrants have is they may have seen it being done differently in the country they came from. And so they may see advantages in the new country and in the old country, and they can then bring the best bits of both together to create a recombinant innovation. So uh, I think the research that I referred to was a, a, a disproportionate number of founders of successful companies are immigrants into a particular country. And I was trying to link this to the analysis that we've already discussed on on recombination. And I guess that sense that you start realising that far more things are negotiable than natural order might suggest. You start thinking, right, well, can we renegotiate everything? Can we change everything, the the context of the, the way ideas are laid out? Yes. And of course, the market eventually decides. I mean, remember, many new companies fail. But what's great about it is we find out what doesn't work. You know, when a, I mean, entrepreneurs are heroes to a large extent because they take personal risk that benefits society even when the company doesn't work and folds. People think, okay, that didn't work. Let's try something different. I- immigrants bring a huge amount of energy to a country. And when their ideas do work, when they do question the defaults and come up with solutions that are genuinely useful and valuable and valued by people, it contributes significantly to economic growth and prosperity. If we know that that outsider mentality is incredibly powerful at being a good provocation to stimulate us to to come up with better ideas, can we seek to foster that outsider mindset in ourselves, do you think? I personally think that one can do it. And I think it's a really important thing for our education system to equip young minds with the ability to question defaults, not to get too comfortable in the given area, but be able to reach beyond that area to see where the new ideas might exist. I use an example in the book of, you know, quite a, you know, a job that some people wouldn't necessarily regard as a high-end job, a call center worker. Um, 
but it's quite a complex job. You know, you get people phoning in with different queries and different concerns, and you have to navigate that person to a meaningful solution. Um, and a very big piece of work on why some call center workers perform better than others was conducted by an economist called Michael Hoosman. And he got 2 million data points and tried to see if there were any interesting correlations. But he couldn't find any. But then somebody in his team said, I wonder if there's a connection between how well they perform as a call center operator and the web browser that they filled out their job application form on. And Hussman was quite skeptical about this. You know, why would it make any? It's just personal preference. Um, but it turned out that those who filled out their job application form on Chrome, Firefox, performed significantly better than those who filled out their application forms on Safari and Internet Explorer. And they were curious as to why. And by the way, they performed better across so many different dimensions. They had better call, uh, you know, shorter call times, higher customer satisfaction. They stayed in their jobs longer, you know, so on and so forth. So very strong set of connections. And the reason, I mean, can you? you I wonder if you, the, your reason has probably jumped out at you. But the reason is, yeah. is that Internet Explorer and Safari are defaults. That you know, they're, they're already downloaded on the computer when you open them up they're just there it's the way the world is and some people accept the way the world is and just carry on others have got the curiosity to think could the world be better in some way they're curious and they think could i have a better web browser and then they have the initiative to download a different web browser so what this difference in web browsers was really indicating is a difference in psychology and the way that fleshes out in a call center worker is when somebody phones in with a query that isn't covered by the script are they adaptive do they have the capacity to think could we come up with something new to help this customer and please them and that curiosity that outsider mindset has huge significance you know in other words not just in innovation and entrepreneurship but just in the way we live our lives and the way we do our jobs but here's what I'm having from that. So I used to do a, a thing where I used to look at people's home screen and um, I used to see the, ho the home screen on your phone. It's like, it's like the, the, your desk. It's like your bedroom. It's like your house. It's the feng shui. It's the place you go to all the time. But I was astonished by the amount of people whose home screen on their phone had all of the default apps. It had Apple Watch, even though they didn't own an Apple Watch. It had Apple Stocks. That's, that's what, the way I'm going to apply that knowledge. What's your home screen like, Matthew? Oh, gosh, good question. So on my laptop, I've got... Phone, um, phone, phone. Okay, uh, phone. I've got the App Store. I've got okay. photos. But how often do you go to the App Store? I see, I think that's the default setting. It may be. It may be. <laughs> see, that's, that's why I'm not, <laughs> I'm not innovative enough. But no, okay. I, yeah, so, yeah. I, so I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that um, the outsider mindset is always good. So, so if in the call centre worker example, you can imagine if people always diverted from the script and always questioned whether the script was a good thing, it wouldn't necessarily be mm. a good thing. There has to be a balance, I think. Balance. Um, and it's the same with you know any area. You know, A pilot, you want them to follow the checklist and to deliver the learning that has been developed over many years. But every now and again, when they're faced by a situation that isn't covered by the historical learning, then you need that agility and adaptability. And I think that goes right back to, to that outsider mindset that, that we've been mm. talking about. I was really interested in the context of leadership in the, when we're thinking about diversity and divergent thinking and how to lead it. You sort of frame two concepts of leadership. And one is of dominance and one is of prestige. So where dominance 
I guess is where you assert that you're the leader and you 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 assert the power of of your role. And the the one of prestige is where you don't necessarily have to assert it, but by the respect you earn, either through your knowledge or your experience, that people are drawn to follow you. Correct me on anything I've got wrong there. No, that's right. I, the, the literature on this is incredible. I found incredibly interesting, and I think probably people listening will be able to think about people who exist in these. That's two what I categories. wanted to do. So I, w- so I wonder if you could sort of help me categorise a number of people. So, would you say Barack Obama was? What would he fall into? So, funnily enough, I did talk to the main researcher. Let me just talk about the two different. So, so obviously, humans have a very evolved dominant psychology we share it with other primates you know you see the leader of a chimpanzee troop you know is very uh, lots of gesticulating often bears their teeth and uses punitive sanctions as a way of removing dissent and humans have that too by the way and it's something that you can see very clearly if you put four strangers in a room and they start talking a dominance hierarchy emerges within seconds and somebody outside the room looking through a pane of glass who can't even hear what is being said can accurately place people at the different rungs of the hierarchical ladder so this is a very deeply integrated aspect of our evolved psychology and um that's a problem if if you've got a say you've got a diverse group of people around a table but the boss is a very dominant boss people unconsciously don't say what they think but what they think the leader wants to hear and that shuts down the creativity and the collective intelligence of the group because effectively the intelligence of the group is just the brain of the leader that people are trying to echo and mirror but it happens unconsciously they don't just mirror what the leader thinks they start mirroring the leader's body language and facial expressions and hand gestures and so on Um, so given that dominance is so much a part of who we are it does form a bit of a problem but there is humans uniquely have a different form of hierarchy, which is a prestige hierarchy, where people become uh, attain positions of influence, not through threat, but as you say, through wisdom, uh, through empathy, through example, and through wise leadership. And then you see a completely different set of behaviours. People are much more willing to suggest ideas. There's a lot more eye contact. People don't cower when they're near that leader. And the observational literature on this, I think, is truly excellent and interesting. But I think it's worth saying, sorry, this is a long answer, that most of the best leaders know when to use each of these techniques. Okay. So if, for example, you've got a tough, complex problem, it makes a hell of a lot of sense to try and make sure that everyone in the room offers ideas. So if you're being very dominant at that point, you're going to shut down the wisdom of the group. But once you've taken a decision and there's no going back, then you want to galvanize people behind the decision. It's no good having a lot of dissent at that point necessarily. Then you want to be more dominant. So I think it's probably wrong to say that there are prestigious and dominant leaders but to say that the best leaders know when to pivot from one way of leading to the other. Right, fascinating. And so the most versatile leaders are the ones who can access both. Yes. You, you can. You, you have access to dominant leadership, but also prestige leadership. Uh, absolutely. And by the way, you know, 
yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in this topic. I, for what it's worth, you see the same in sport, which is my background. I was going to ask about someone like Gareth Southgate, for example, for exactly that purpose. Go on. Yeah, well, I was going to say that if you take, for example, a sports person about to take a putt at the 18th hole of Augusta, you want that person to be in a sort of a dominant mindset. You know, I'm going to nail this putt. I'm going to do it. You want them to be re- – you don't want them thinking, oh, I might miss this. Oh, my goodness, you know. And they – because, it, you know, that doubt isn't good when you're executing, right? You want to be confident when you're executing. But if that confidence, you know, I'm always going to make a putt, if you have that in the – when you're practicing, and oh, I don't need to practice because I'm basically brilliant. Do you see what I mean? That's no so, – mm. so, so you really want humility – when you're evaluating, when you're evaluating the different options, I need to be humble so I can listen to other people. I can practice if I'm on my own to get better at what I need to do. So, but you also want confidence when you're executing. So I think that that agility is really important in almost all walks of life to, to know when to switch things on and off according to the context. Um, and I think dominant leaders who are dominant in meetings, who are dominant when executing, dominant when evaluating – they are a disaster for their companies. Yeah, and it really strikes me, just thinking as you, as you talk through that, the, the leaders who are able in moments of crisis or moments of unexpected situations to actually access that different form of leadership. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the things that I think we're drawn towards when, uh, when someone can be more thoughtful, can be more considered. It, it seems to be a powerful weapon in their armoury. Oh, massive. If leaders are aware that people whose promotions are based upon the approval of that leader, they're much less likely to offer ideas that diverge from those of the leader. But if the situation really requires diverse voices, you need to hear them. And trying to create a culture where people speak up, offer ideas, you get a dynamic meeting, and there are tools that I talk about in the book to, to get that is really important. But, you know, once you're, you've got the plan and you're moving forward, obviously you need to adapt the plan in the light of changing events. But broadly speaking, you then need to galvanize people into action. There's nothing wrong at all with becoming a bit more dominant at that point. And I think people in an organization really admire leaders who know how to be uh, flexible in the way they approach their role. And I think it's a big differentiator. One of the things that was really intrigued by was this notion that all of us is better than than any of us so so that you know by us being uh, collectively intelligent it seems to be more powerful than uh, than our individual intellect and this quotation that i wrote down was our ancestors were not smarter than neanderthals by virtue of their individual brains they were smarter by virtue of their collective brains this notion that our superpower wasn't necessarily intellect it was being social being able to combine our ideas and to preserve our ideas in dialogue with others it's a really fascinating concept it's sort of it's a reframing of, of how we think humans have got a superpower. I'm really glad you, you read to the end because I, I, I think my next book will be, will be on this. That Exactly right. I'm utterly convinced by the research that you know the Neanderthals probably had bigger brains than we did, but they lived in more dispersed groups. That meant that they didn't connect with other people very often so that their neighbourhood – wasn't you know the ideas in the brains in their neighborhood 
there weren't that many because they were so dispersed. Humans lived in slightly closer connected groups, which meant the number of ideas in the group was more than any one person could learn on their own over the course of a lifetime. Once that happened, it paid in evolutionary terms to be able to extract the ideas from other minds to help you survive and reproduce. And that meant that there was suddenly selection pressure on sociality, on sharing ideas, and that created this cumulative cultural evolution. You could not only learn ideas from other people, but the ideas that you learned you could pass to your children. Um, They could then add to that stock of ideas, pass it to their children. So suddenly, unlike all other – well, chimpanzees have some cultural traditions and, and so do crows, but humans uniquely have cumulative cultural evolution. We have economic growth. We have technological change. And that's largely to do with the interplay between our sociality and the growing cultural complexity that we talked about earlier with music and with television programs. That playing out over many generations is the uh, the unique aspect of, of our species. And it's been written about very convincingly by, for example, Joseph Henrik, uh, professor of evolutionary biology at Harvard University. It's such a powerful reframing, isn't it? Because, you know, one of the things I was really taken with, there's a wonderful book by a guy called Matt Lieberman who talks, who talks it's called Social, and he talks about how, you know, the, the pivotal moment in evolution was when humans were able to... in. Uh, to, to be recombinant with ideas and to, to, to share ideas. But I think so often we consider Neanderthals as an evolutionary step beneath us intellectually. And the notion that that might not be the case, and actually it's, it's this magical ability to combine ideas and, and share and stand on the shoulder of, of giants being the evolutionary leap, probably challenges some of the, the ideas that we've established in our heads, the models we've got in our heads. I think so. I've, I've read the book, uh, the Lieberman book. It's good. It's, it's, it's neuroscientist, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, and, you know, in a funny kind of a way, there's a big interplay because if you think the more the stock of ideas in the population, the greater the pressure on bigger brains to store that information and to recombine it in various ways. And so suddenly around that time, uh, where we're competing with the you get this big selection pressure for bigger brains. But this culture makes those brains more intelligent too because we're born with counting system, with, with language. We can learn literacy from our parents. That enables us to manipulate ideas more effectively. So we've got this incredibly strong feedback loop between the culture, the ideas that have been gradually accumulating through time, building bigger brains capable of generating new innovations and feeding back again. That, I think, is the story of our species. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I loved the quotation by John Cleese, which was... Everyone has theories. The dangerous people are those who are not aware of their theories as, as just a, a good summation of some of the ways that at times we are locked in models that we consider to be so objective rather than subjective that we were often not willing to open ourselves to other ideas or to other perspectives. And having an awareness that we have these theories, having an awareness that we have these models, actually is probably the first stage to enlightenment in, in that yeah. way. Yeah, I, I, the, the Cleese quote is is a brilliant, brilliant quote. He's a he's a he's such a wonderful. I mean, <laughs> I'm a big fan of him. In fact, one of the, one of the best evenings of my life. I managed to get together with him for dinner in in London, and it was just a joy to spend it with him. It's such a fertile mind, but he totally gets this idea that you need to step outside your assumptions and your way of thinking about the world in order to really be creative. So he he's a very big influence. Absolutely. I'm thrilled. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me and, and talking to me. And so you say that you're going to go on and develop these ideas. What would you go on and study next? So I want to do this idea of you that you mentioned about how our species became successful, and it was largely to do with our sociality, but then to try and look at modern human history from, say, 12,000 years ago to today using that lens. Um, so, you know, Obviously, difficult to carve out the time to, to do the research at this point, but I'm really looking mm. forward to doing it. And look, thanks for having me. I've loved the chat. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for doing some background reading on, on the books, which, which, which was wonderful. Good <laughs> to talk about Max Martin and, and music. Um, Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you, Matthew, for that. You can get more goodness at the website, eatsleepworkrepeat.com. I've been Bruce Daisley. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.